My name's Sebastian Major, and I am the host of the Our Fake History podcast. I'm Rebecca Larson with the Tudors Dynasty podcast. This is Greta Harden. My name is Benjamin Jacobs. I'm Anton. And I'm Rick. I'm David Montgomery. I'm Brief. My name is Roberto Toro. I'm Jamie. And I'm Rob. We will be speaking at Intelligent Speech. I am looking forward to speaking at Intelligent Speech 2023. I will be speaking at Intelligent Speech online this year. Mark your calendars for this November 4th. Intelligent Speech, the online conference for history fans by history podcasters. It's a three-ring circus of fascinating content with around 24 hours of live presentations. This year is all about contingencies. Times when history meets the unexpected. The topic of my keynote address is no contingencies. The tutors and their contingency plans. So go to intelligencespeechonline.com to get your tickets. We'll see everybody on November 4th. So are you ready to continue on with the rule of Vladimir Monomak? Where did we last leave off? What? Where did we last leave off? Well, what happened last time is Syatpok II, the Grand Prince of Kiev, who we last covered, finally died in 1113, with the throne just wide open for anyone to take. Oh, right. War of Succession. Yes, so Brendan, a War of Succession is about to take place. So you see, the death of the Grand Prince of Kiev caused a major disruption in the city. The Kievan City Assembly came together to declare an emergency session. Because, you know, those are always good to have when you don't have a prince, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, I can see it now. It's sort of like a movie where it's like, you know, a guy in a suit. He's like, where's my coffee? Janine, cancel all my three o'clocks. So they called it an emergency session. And can you guess the main reason they called it? Probably because the Grand Prince of Kiev just died, and there's about to be a war of succession. That, and the main reason is that they didn't want Sviatopolk's son, Yaroslav Sviatopolchic, to get the throne. Sviatopolchic? Yeah, because that's because it's not Sviatopolkovic, Sviatopolchic. Why? It's, it's Russian grammar. There's no reason to it. But yeah, Yaroslav Sviatopolchic, they didn't want him to inherit the throne because they didn't want... Sviatopolk's policies to kind of continue because it was very much a the prince gets everything and the nobles get nothing. So they decided to vote for who would be the next grand prince. And who do you think they voted for? Vladimir Monomak. That is exactly who they voted for. This is the lamest origin story. It's the lamest war of succession ever. This sucks. (laughs) We're not done yet. Okay. So the city assembly sent Igor to Periaslavl to let Monomak know that he's a new grand prince. And do you know know what Monomak said when he received this news? Um, probably yes. He said, I completely refuse. I do not want this position. Uh, Understandable. You kind of put a target on your back. Well, the main reason he didn't want the throne was because if he just took it based off of the Kievan assembly's you know, decision and voting. The other princes may not be too happy with this. So he didn't want to cause another civil war if he decided to just up and take the throne when there's other people who also have a claim to it. Yeah, so he didn't want to put a target on his back. That was right. I was right. You were right. Um, So Igor went back to the city assembly and told them about Monomach's refusal and the Kievans found out and they began 
to riot. So what is a massive mob that's angry, they don't get what they want, gonna do? Um, probably attack whatever building the Achievement Assembly is in. Something close to that, actually. So they actually stormed the palace of the Chiliarch, and his name is Putiata. What's a Chiliarch? I was about to explain that. So a Chiliarch is a is the prince's man who's responsible over the city. So he's kind of like the guy in charge. Okay, so he's the mayor. Yeah, he's basically the mayor. And his name is Putiata. So the Kievans plundered his stuff. And can you guess where they went after they plundered the Chiliarch's palace? Um, to the building, to, or I don't know, to the palace of the Prince of Kiev. No, they went to the Jewish quarter and robbed them of everything. Oh, okay. There are Jews in Ukraine at this point? Wait, what year is this? This is 1113. 1113. When did when when did Jews end up in Kiev? We didn't mention them. They've been there for a while. You never said anything about them. Nothing. They weren't made a note of in the Chronicles. Oh, I guess that explains it. Yeah, so this is the first time they're mentioned, like, aside from, oh, you guys lost Jerusalem, I won't convert to your faith by Vladimir the Great. That's true. That was the only other mention of Jews was that the Khazars wanted to convert vladimir the great but like i don't proselytization isn't really a thing in judaism christianity and islam yes judaism no you know this is the first time we've seen them in the chronicles in a while and of course they are being oppressed beaten down and just not having a great time i feel bad for them are the chroniclers saying it wasn't the jews fault they actually didn't say it was a jews fault they just said the kievans went in and robbed them okay so they didn't say it one way or another no they're just like no this is what happened but of course, you know, they go to the Chiliarch and then the Jewish quarter and they don't destroy any part, other part of the city. With the riots turning more and more violent and them destroying and plundering the Jewish quarter, more and more calls came for Monomach to become the new Grand Prince. And the church authorities and the boyars of Kiev couldn't handle this mess anymore because they were, their stuff was starting to be destroyed. So they decided that, yes... We both agree that Monomach should be the Grand Prince and went along with the city assembly's decision to make him the Grand Prince. So the boyars are just like the nobility of Kiev. If they decided that, yes, we have, you know, we're going to put Monomach in and the church says, yes, we're going to put Monomach in, the other princes kind of have to listen. This is kind of an, this is an interesting thing because this is the first time that I've heard of common people wielding any over any power over you know, the characters of our little drama here. Because every character in this drama, they're nobles. They're all people in power. They lead armies. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that power of everyone else, the common people, has been even spoken of, as far as I can tell. You forgot about Izyaslav being kicked out of Kiev. Oh, yeah, yeah, true. And Sieslav, yeah. And Sieslav, the sorcerer, being put in. Yeah, that, true. True. Which was also Uh, the Kievans. (laughs) So, yeah. Kievans have a history of ousting people yeah. from power. Sort of, sort, of, yeah, sort of the French philosophy of rioting. Exactly. Which is that, you know, if you don't get your way, not only are we going to riot, we're going to riot harder than anybody. That is true. But now that, you know, the city assembly had the noble support and the church support, Monomach knew that he had everything he needed to become the Grand Prince of Kiev. So he said yes, finally. And went off to Kiev, where he was met with great honors by the Metropolitan, Nik- whose name is Nikiforos, the bishops of the church, and the inhabitants of the city. So they were cheering, saying, heck yeah, we have our prince. And almost did, instantly, the riots were quelled. Did the did the Chronicles say anything about, like, was it that the riot, he was afraid of the rioting, or he wanted to stop the rioting, or just the fact that people are rioting in his name 
instilled him with that much more confidence. It was more so that he didn't really care about the rioting per se. He just wanted to make sure that the other princes wouldn't attack him. Because like he was okay. he already he already knew he was a shoe in, but Kiev is known for like kicking people out. Not mm-hmm. always, but they they've done it. So he just wanted to make sure that if he came in as someone who isn't part of the Isia Slavici, that he would be able to just go in and take the throne. And he this basically allowed him to just take the throne because he had the support of both the boyars of the city, the people, and the church. So nobody else with a claim could say, oh, we have that, because they were all calling for Monomak. And with that, Monomak sat upon his new throne. And the first thing that he did was replace the Chiliarch Putiata with his own man, because he didn't want Sviatopolk's men in power. Understandable. And then he started doing your favorite thing. What? He started writing laws. I didn't say I liked laws. I said I liked writing. So he started working on legislation almost immediately. And just to kind of backtrack, uh, Sviatopolk and Sviatopolk were actually quite corrupt and only made their laws serve the nobility. That's true of every Grand Prince of Kiev. Well, well, well. That's that's true of the entire system. That's true of the entire political system. Well, Monomak wanted to be a very good Christian and a good Grand Prince. So one of the first things that he did was bring together a group of the highest officials that he trusted to revise legislation regarding loans and indentured labor. This conference's aim was to prevent the abuses connected with short-term loans and limit the interest on the long-term loans. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, I was I was going to say, like, I do... The topic of debt slavery is interesting to me because I read a couple books about that dealt somewhat with debt slavery. One was The Creation of Patriarchy by Greta Lerner and Against the Grain by James C. Scott. And both deal with the earliest you know, the earliest record we have of civilization. And a major feature of those societies was debt slavery. It was not uncommon for people to sell themselves into slavery or agree to go into slavery if they could not pay off their debts or sell their children into slavery. And this was a pressing issue throughout the ancient world to the point that the original translation of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, could also mm-hmm. be said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As in, it was at the time li- meant literally, we should forgive debts because being in debt to other people could could be bad. It could cause you to be sold into debt slavery. You want to know what Mona Mach did in, re- in response to the Our Father, forgive our debt like we forgive our debtors? Um, he abolished all debts. Forgave all debts, a debt jubilee. Well, the first thing he did was he reduced the rate of interest from 120% to just 20%. Yeah, that is mafia-level loans. Yeah. And then also decreed that whoever had paid a year's interest according to the old rate was thereby absolved of his debt. So he did forgive debts. Yeah. And then... He also made sure that authority over indentured laborers was limited and they could no longer be enslaved during the tenure of their contract. So you can't be an indentured servant and then become a slave. That is no longer a thing you can do. Yeah. The thing with ancient laws was if you were an indentured servant or sorry, a debt slave for a certain period of time, after a certain period of time, not only were you forgiven your debts, but your debtor was required to give you a little something like 
some some money, some land, some goats, etc. According to Leviticus, I believe. When I say the ancient world, I'm 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 what I mean is I mean in um, ancient um, Israelite society. Although the typically the similar arrangement was present in in Babylon and Assyria mm-hmm. and you know ma- major city states of the era. Yeah, and then he also made made it so the self settling of impoverished men to slavery had more restrictions to guarantee against fraud as well. Mm. So he's basically just making it harder to become enslaved. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, being you know going on being a good Christian, I don't quote me on this, but I believe one of the major theories as why Jesus of Nazareth was so despised by the Philistines was partly because the Philistines were disproportionately creditors and Jesus advocated reinstating annual debt jubilees in which all jubilees sorry all debts were wiped clean I'd be down for that which is yeah which is something that um which don't quote me on that but debt jubilees are real it was very common for when a, a people was conquered like say if the Romans conquered the Jews again. It would be typical for the conqueror to to wipe clean all debts as a gesture of goodwill. Monomax helping of the lower classes was mostly because of his enlightened statesmanship and his deep Christian charity. And to m- promote this, he knew he had to have social legislation to fulfill his role as a Christian. He's even attested as saying to his sons in his testament, "Give to the orphan, protect the widow, and permit the mighty to destroy no man." And he also describes his policies, saying, I did not allow the mighty to distress the poor peasant or the poverty-stricken widow. Also, this testament of Vladimir, which we're also going to read and release not long after the episode, showcases an old Russian prince at his best, and because it upholds the two pillars of Christianity for Vladimir, a fear of God and the love of one's fellow man. I, I can't disagree. What he's doing is very Christian. And then this is where you're going to be very much like him a bit more. Because he was very highly educated and valued it highly and loved to learn. And he really liked reading. Like, he was always reading. There's even one point where he bragged about his dad being a polyglot and being able to speak five foreign languages, despite never having really left Rus. So he's like, yeah, my dad knows five languages and I like learning. Come on, like, we're an educated family. Well, how many languages did he speak? Uh, we don't know. But I'm assuming <laughs> he, at, <laughs> he at least spoke Greek and probably a bit of Cuman. Mm. And like probably Polish, some Latin, mm. you know, there's a lot of stuff he could have known. This this just comes up as like, well, my dad's a construction worker and he could beat your dad up. Seville couldn't beat a fly up, but come on. <laughs> yeah. Motomach also f- further spent his time patronizing literary works, enacting more laws, issuing charters, and founding towns, such as this town called Vladimir that's around Moscow and, um, well, the current day Moscow. And this town of Vladimir, remember that town, please, because it's going to be very important in a few episodes. Um, what what literature did he patronize? Do we have any? We do not have much records. I'm sure he just had, like, basically let people write more chronicles and everything. Mm-hmm. He is also attested to having the first piece of literature that was written by a layman and not a churchman in mm-hmm. Russia. That's cool. Which is his testament. We, but it doesn't survive. It does survive. We have it. Oh, okay. His his testament? Yeah, we're reading it as like the next episode. Oh, okay. Well, I'm reading it, but yes, it'll be fun. And of course, he also erected fortifications around his territory, built and decorated churches, and even ordered for a bridge to be built across the Dnieper River. 
so you could more easily access it and create trade routes and everything. So he worked very hard on building up the land around him. And um, that's pretty much it for the things that Monomak did for Rus in a legislative sense and just architectural sense, because we don't know much else about what he did when he was in power. But we're going to talk a bit about what else he did militarily, because that's also important, right? Yeah, if, if I could, before we go, I could just say, I think it's back on the topic of the uses and abuses of religion. I find it very interesting, the the legislation he passed, because when I say... When I say the audience, when I say that it was very Christian, what I mean is, yeah, it seems consistent with Christian values. I'm not saying that as a Christian myself. I'm just saying that as a person, as an outside observer. And it's interesting because religion, you know, religious institutions at this time were as oppressive and abusive as you could probably imagine. We've touched on that in earlier episodes. But once in a while, the pendulum swings the other way, and it's sort of, I guess you could see, view it as like a means of the non-noble elements of society to, I suppose, persuade the nobles of society to adopt morality that is counter to their interests. Mm-hmm. Well, not not always exactly counter to their interests, because he was also trying to get in good with the church, but... Also, the church never had a problem with people doing the opposite of what he was doing. Oh, no, absolutely not. They're fi- usually fine with it. But we also never get to hear about what small local churches do in the area. We just hear about what the big players in power do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we didn't mention it because we were going over his legislative stuff. But the transition of power to Monomach also caused some issues in Rus. Because guess who decided to ride back into the territory? Cumans. The Cumans. And then Alyeg of Chertigov shows up in Kiev. I forgot. He didn't die. He's still alive. He goes up to Monomak, gives him a big hug, and then takes out his sword. Can you guess what happens next? Mm, I'm, I'm guessing his bodyguards tackle him. Nope. He puts a sword in front of Monomak and pledges his loyalty to the, the new Grand Prince. So now Alieg is saying, yes, I am subservient to you, which he has not done for anyone else. He is doing this to Monomak. So this is kind of like Alieg saying, I know you're in full power now. I will do whatever you want me to do. And together, they fight against the Cumans and push them back past the Don River. So they actually managed to beat them badly and just push them back even further back along the borders. And this will end up being the last campaign outside of Roost that Monomach will ever take part in. As of now, the Cumans will not come back as often. That's probably a good thing. They have more time to focus on fighting each other now. Exactly. Because <laughs> that's exactly what's going to happen. But before we get to that, let's do some religious stuff. Because you see, at some point, Moromak decided to assist the League of Chernigov to transfer the relics of Boris and Gleb to a stone church that Sviatoslav II, who's Alieg's dad, had worked on in Vyshkorod, which is north of Kiev. Funnily enough, this church took forever to get put in place for a few reasons. Because work started on it back in the 1070s. We're in currently in 1113. This started back in the 1070s, and Sviatoslav II was in charge at the time, but he died before anything could be completed. Then, under Sievolod, the building was completed, but then the roof collapsed before they could consecrate the building. Then Sievolod died, and Sviatopolk II took power. He didn't like Alieg's family, basically. Um, he refused to allow Alieg to work on it and transfer the relics from the old church to the new one. So it would take another four years for the Monomach to allow Alieg to control the land. And even then, once the Monomach took power, it would take him two years to let Alieg do anything. So it seems like he was waiting for Alieg to give him 
his loyalty to him before he could say, yes, feel free to transfer the, transfer the relics now. So just kind of like power playing right there a bit with his cousins. And the main reason is that Mordomach wanted to gain complete control of the territory in Rus. He wanted to make sure that he could hold everything under his fist and also wanted to ensure that Alieg and his family renounced all of their rights to the Kievan throne. So the Alieg, as they're going to be known from now on, the Ogovici will no longer have claims to the Kievan throne. And Monomach's family would now be the only one who could inherit. That definitely takes care of wars of succession, or wars of inheritance. And with that situation resolved, Monomach gave Alieg permission to make the transfer of the relics. And wouldn't you know it, this transfer of relics was actually very well attended that, you know, more than any other place in Eastern Europe, because you would have, except for Constantinople, but you had religious officials from all over, including Poland, Czechia, Hungary, and Byzantium. So you had everyone flocking over to see this transfer of relics, and it was even more well attended than when they put the relics in the original wooden church. Now they're going to move it to the stone church. Remind me, why are, what is, is Boris in whom? Gleb. Why are they? Are they? Why are they saints again? Because they they were basically martyred. Um, they were killed by Sviatopolk the Accursed when he tried taking the throne from right. Yaroslav. So they were turned into princes because they were both praying when they died, essentially. Turned into martyrs, you mean? They were turned into martyrs, yeah. And they were they com- they completed miracles when people prayed to them. So the Russia's yeah. first saints. But this transfer was actually led by Monomach because Boris was the patron saint of the Monomachy family which is Monomach's family now. And Gleb's remains were escorted by David of Chernigov, who is Alieg's brother. And Alieg was feeling his age because he was getting quite old and he was running the, the whole ordeal, so was, that's, which is why David, his younger brother, was the one escorting Gleb's remains. And when the caskets were placed into the church, the three cousins began to argue <laughs> in the church <laughs> very loudly because Monomach apparently wanted to take some of the glory himself and demanded that the caskets be placed in the center of the church, of the, well, in the center of the nave, so he could erect this, a, this beautiful silver canopy over them. And Aliag refused, as he tended to do, because he's he was just like, oh no, we built a special spot for them on the right-hand side of the church, so we're going to place them there because it literally is ready for them to be placed there. So they kept bickering and bickering and bickering. And then the Metropolitan stepped in, you know, Nikephoros, and was like, all right, guys, you need to stop arguing. You're in a church. You do not argue in church. Now, instead of um, figuring out how to, or, you know, just getting nowhere with arguing about where to put it, why don't you just draw lots? So which game of chance do you think they played, Brendan? Gambling in a church? No, they're drawing lots. Not You're not saying it for money. Well... The, the, the Metropolitan said it was fine. Well, when I was in Catholic school, we couldn't have cards because it was gambling. Well, they didn't have to play with cards, Brendan. And public school also. There were a lot of dumb rules. But uh, uh, they, they draw straws? Yes. And then they took out their sketch pads and just actually started drawing the best straw. And mm-hmm. Alieg apparently had this beautiful talent as a painter because he drew such a realistic straw. You know, a piece of straw, actually. Not, not to sip yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, like... Lighting, did shadowing work, a, little, a lot of details. Exactly. So he, he was able to make it super realistic. And the Metropolitan was like, wait, this looks like you just put a piece of straw on there. And it was like, yeah, this is my hidden talent. And he won the argument. And then poor Monomach, he felt so thoroughly humiliated because of this. Because you know what he drew for his straw? Did he draw a drinking straw? No, he just drew a line. You know, he's great at reading and writing books. He just can't 
draw, but that's okay. He was very humiliated, but he still wanted to get some credit for this. What did they actually do? Did they actually... They drew lots. They They drew lots. So I think they just, you know, they put put their names in a hat and then they drew a name and it was Alieg. I don't know, which is why I asked you. After the whole transference of relics, he actually went in and just ordered that the caskets be gilded and the shrines be decorated with precious metals and stones. He was like, no, I still want credit for this. I'm going to put make it look beautiful. I don't care where they are. I want it to look beautiful. And we even get a note from the Chronicler that, yeah, even the Byzantines, when they visited the church, they were like, this is super beautiful. Great job, Bonamak. So he still got some credit, but he didn't get the original credit. He just kind of tacked stuff on at the end. Well, and that's the, the church service. But then we have Gleb Sieslavich, the son of Sieslav the Sorcerer, who is not a sorcerer. So he's not as fun as his dad. How did the uh, chroniclers feel about this guy? You want to find out? Yeah. He started attacking the lands of the Prince hmm. of Turov, and he set fire to the town of Slutsk. Mm-hmm. It's, it's spelled S-L-U-T-S-K. Wow. Sounds like a great time. <laughs> well, he burnt the he burnt the city, he burnt the town down. That, that sounds so, less fun. Well, Modomach joined his sons and allies in the march against Gleb. And when they arrived on a battlefield to see Gleb, you could see Gleb's pants start to get like a it's like water trickling down the, the sides <laughs> of his pants, and he immediately surrendered. And then three years later, Gleb was like, "Actually, I'm not that scared anymore," so he started attacking. And Mordomach took an army and took and besieged the town of Minsk and captured it. He arrested Gleb and put him under house arrest, where Gleb mysteriously died not too long after this. In a hunting accident. In the dungeon. Oh, he was under house arrest, so he died in his house. Yeah, yeah he was hunting um, a mouse infestation. Exactly. And he died in a hunting accident. He ate rat poison. He ate rat poison. You know... Rat poison behind, uh, be, two holes of rat poison behind his head, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he shot himself twice in the back of the head. And with that, the Sieslavici were quelled, and Minsk was brought into Monomach's domain. So he now controls the area around Minsk. And then uh, Mstislav, his son, his eldest son, was removed from Novgorod. And he was placed in Belgorod, which is a Kievan outpost. And then he put his grandson in Novgorod. So this transference was because... He wanted to ensure that the Sviatoslavici had no ideas about taking the throne of Kiev due to being disinherited. And another big reason may be that because Mstislav was his main heir, he wanted his heir to be closer to Kiev in case something happened to him. So Monomach was able to allow his eldest son to be part of the government and participate in multiple negotiations and battles so he could get more and more experience. But then you have Yaroslav Sviatopolchich, who we mentioned earlier, who's the son of Sviatopolk II, the previous Grand Prince, and he wasn't too happy about this. Because if Mstislav was close to Kiev, and he wasn't, that means he wouldn't inherit the throne like he was supposed to. So he started to rebel, and Monomach decided to march against him to deal with the insubordination. This siege lasted for two months, and Yaroslav finally surrendered, promising to be a loyal vassal and assist Monomach when summoned. Do you think he'd be loyal? I wouldn't. Yaroslav decided to then repudiate his wife, who's Monomach's granddaughter. Ouch. And this disgrace caused Monomach to march towards Yaroslav once more, and Yaroslav fled to the Hungarians. And with that, Monomach uh, took the Yaroslav's territory of Vladimir Volinsky as his own, and gave it to his son Roman. 
So his son, Roman. Well, that wasn't very smart of Yaroslav, was it? Modomak's son, Roman, died pretty quickly. So he gave it to his youngest son, Andrei, who's now the last youngest son. You know, Yaroslav was probably upset because with Mstislav being placed in Belgorod, that was definitely signaling that he's going to be the new successor and broke Yaroslav the Wise's succession plan. And this plan sucked anyways. So it's better bro- being broken than anything else because it's just like, oh yeah, the next brother inherits or the next son of the next brother inherits, which has just made a complete mess. So M- Motomak was like, this law sucks. We're not going to run by it anymore. I'm going to pick my own heir. There's no use in waiting for my brother to take over or something, which makes sense. <laughs> At least to me, it does. Then Yaroslav returned from Hungary with a new Hungarian force and besieged Andrei Monomak in Vladimir Volensky, where he attempted to get his old princedom back. But uh, Monomak was unable to muster enough men quickly. He did do something. He actually went to a back alley and started talking to this hooded figure. What do you want to name this hooded figure? Quasimodo. Quasimodo? Yeah. Okay. Well, this Quasimodo went forth and went to the, you know, went to Vladimir Volinsky and went to the camp of Prince Yaroslav and uh, murdered him. <laughs> well, now that seems just unfair to the fictional Quasimodo. My understanding what he that he was a nice guy. I haven't read the book or seen the movie. He was a nice guy in the, in the movie. Yeah. But you could you name the Quasimodo, so he's Quasimodo. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Hooded figures, I just think, Quas- I don't know. It just came to me. I don't even know if Quasimodo wears a hood, ever. He, do- he, he doesn't. He wore a blanket. Okay. With the murder of Yaroslav, the Izyaslavici had forever lost their territory of Vladimir Volinsky. So they no longer control that. That is now under Monomach's rule. And then Monomach noticed that there were a few empty seats in the realm... So he filled them with his sons and consolidated the territory to be under his direct rule. Wow. Yeah? Well, okay. The, the thing is, it's like, when he dies, there's going, there might be a war of succession. I, I, don't, I don't trust people who, like, split their, ter- their territory up among their sons equally. Since he is the father of the Monomaki, any son that he placed on the, thro- on the throne of a city would be subservient to him. So there would be no more fighting, right? For now, until he dies... He has to name his successor still and hope that nobody has a problem with it. Well, he technically did name his successor. It was, yeah, it was his first son. Mrs. Love, yes. Yeah, Mrs. Love. And then all the remaining princes pledged their allegiance to the, to the Grand Prince. So he is now has full-on control of the territory. Of all of Rus. Of all of Rus. Like, officially, wow. everyone listens to just him. When was when was the last time that happened? Technically under Sievolod. There's no, there's now there's no more triumvirate. Like... It's mm-hmm. just him in power, because, like, Sjadlopolk is dead, Alieg is dead, so he's just the last one standing. Because there can only be one. But sometimes thing, things happen to people, especially when they get old. What do you think that happened to Monomak? What do people do when they get old? Played a lot of bingo. <laughs> he died of old age on May 19th, 1125, and was buried in the St. Sophia Cathedral in Kiev next to his father. And then the Chronicles love to gush about how Monomach was an ideal prince and he is spoken of in glowing terms. He loved his fellow man and was generous to the poor. Not a uh, not a high bar to clear for a noble at this point. I'm not going to lie. And then there are also some legends attributed to him, by the way. Mm-hmm. So there is a legend where he was part of the transference of the Theotokos of Vladimir from Constantinople to Vladimir, which is a city he named, which didn't happen 
but he's named as the person who did it. And then there's also the story where Emperor Constantine IX Monomachos of Byzantium gave him the Monomach cap used by future princes as a crown. This is also impossible because Vladimir Monomach was two when Constantine died. So his grandfather could not have sent him any hat or anything. But the Monomach cap is actually named off of him, which is the famous like fur crown that, you know, you see with all the Russian rulers, all the Russian czars wearing before like hmm. Peter the Great. Most famously seen with Ivan the Terrible. Yeah. Are you ready to rank him? Um, yeah. Spezzalne Operatia. Special Operations. How well do they do in battle, lead in battle, or have others lead in battle for them? Pretty good. Yeah. I actually do have a few things that I didn't mention in the in the whole, like, retelling. Uh-huh. But according to him, he wrote himself that at the time in his testament in 1117, that he campaigned intensely against the Cumans. His testament speaks of 83 major campaigns, countless minor ones, 19 peace treaties with the Cumans, and, over, and he killed over 200 Cuman princes himself. Huh. And then according to tradition, Cuban mothers used to scare their children with his name. <laughs> yeah. So I can't speak as to the, uh, let's say, human skill at warfare. But, you know, a success in battle is success in battle. We can only judge him by that. So mm-hmm. if he was so successful against the humans, I'd say he's probably good at the whole war thing exactly and then i also want to remind you that he's the one that sviatopolk and sievolod always asked to put down rebellions and he's always able to like beat them down every time Hmm. yeah so i'm well do we have any major failures i'm about to get to that okay chernigov seems to be like the only black mark on his portfolio Mm -hmm. because he captured chernigov you know when alieg first took it over when when his dad was a prince but then after his dad died, Alieg took over the city, but he just took over the city and he basically just gave Alieg the city because he didn't want to cause any more problems or continue the war. He's like, Alieg just wants city. Why would I keep fighting and wasting men to just, you know, when I have other cities I can control? Right. He lost the battle, but technically he's like, yeah, Alieg's not going to attack me or take more of my territory. I can just give him this one piece of land and be fine. And then another failure was that he did lose some battles to the Cumans. But that was mostly Sviatopolk's fault because Sviatopolk was in charge of the campaign. And mm-hmm. he, he did tell Sviatopolk a lot of good advice, as we mentioned earlier, where he's like, hey, don't cross the river. Just talk, just be peaceful with them. And Sviatopolk was like, nah, man, let's fight. And he's like, all right, but it's, you know, we're going to lose. <laughs> so he was like, he's very tactfully sound. Like he knew when he was going to win or lose. And then he did, he tried taking the best course of action. And then he also waged war against the Poles, the Chudes, the Lithuanians, and the Volga Bulgars during his during his reign. And he, you know, he basically just beat them back, but never went like full on go into their territory to take stuff over. It was very much a keep things going as they go. But then I just kind of do want to show you some maps. So the purple is Bonomak. So that is in 1093 at the start of Sviatopolk's reign. So that is his territory. You know, if Sviatopolk the Sorcerer is still being there, Sviatopolk II being Grand Prince. David Gordievich, who blinded Vasilko, and then Volodar and Vasilko in, like, the bottom part of the area. Um, so that's kind of, like, the map at that point. Then you have 1113, at the start of Monomach's reign. So you can see Chernigov is now, like, gone from the territory, but he gained Periaslavl and Kiev in the bottom. I'm sorry, the map is in Russian, so I'm just pointing with my mouse. Yeah. But he still has a good, most of the territory in the area. And then, at the end of his reign, he controls even more territory around. 
So he, he got two more provinces, such as Minsk and Vladimir Volinsky. Um, so he controls still a great chunk of the area. So, and his, and basically his sons still control other areas. So like the pink and, um, you know, here in Polotsk, his son owns that. Then you have mm-hmm. yellow here and Volodymyr Volodarevich. Oh no, no, that's not his son. But, um, you know, Yaroslav Svetoslavich is in purple. So that is Svetos, um, Svetoslav the second son. But, it, you know, here in like the magenta is Monomak and, you know, everywhere. So basically he owns the most territory in Rus. And consolidated, but he never did go any further. He didn't expand the territory or anything. So, what do you want to give him? Well, he didn't expand the territory, so... I I don't think it really matters that he didn't expand the territory, honestly. Because we're talking about victory in battle, I'm kind of tempted to give him a 10. I mean, he did do a lot of fighting, and he won a lot. The The fact that, for me, what gets me every time is the fact that Cuban mothers use his name to scare their children. Yeah, but I can only give him a nine. <laughs> okay, because he enough. didn't. Because I, I would love to give him a ten if he expanded the territory. You know, and not within. You know, he he did expand the territory within Rus, but he he didn't make Rus bigger, which is my thing. All he did was kick the Cumans out, fight fight along the borders, push them back, and that's it. But nothing more than that. So nine for me. Okay, that's a nineteenth for Spetsalne Operatio, which makes him which makes him number one in this category. Okay, alrighty. Success. How successful were they in running their nation? What cultural significance did they leave behind? Again, this is a this is a high scoring one. I, I I say so too, because like he did a lot. He did a lot. First of all, he expanded the jurisdiction of the Prince of Kiev and consolidated his authority over all of Rus. You know, he secured pledges from other princes of other dynasties but also by appointing his sons to the most of the domains in the land, especially the most important parts mm-hmm. of it. And he controlled the whole, he controlled all of Rus, controlled the whole territory. He controlled the whole territory. Uh, for me, he enacted multiple laws for the betterment of lower classes. Mm-hmm. So like he wanted to help the poor, the women, the orphans. He put money towards them. He, you know, he actually backed up what he was talking about. Yeah. That inherently doesn't count for me, but it was revolutionary compared to what came before and that i will count as a uh as you know points points towards him and then he's also canonized as the russian saint okay yeah so he's a saint clearly beloved his reign is considered the golden age of kiev oh the golden age was in 1134 that's uh maybe not a good sign but no 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 but like his eight the golden age is considered like the start of the golden age of kiev is his reign Okay, so it's the start of the Golden Age. It didn't end with him. It didn't end with him, but it's considered part of the Golden Age of Kiev. And then he also wrote the Testament, which is something he wrote for his sons to kind of be good rulers and constitutes the earliest known example of old Russian literature written by a layman. So he probably Mm. wrote one of the first pieces of literature not by a religious figure. I didn't know that. I didn't know that the purpose was to teach his sons to be good rulers. Yeah. That's that's interesting. That makes it an early work of political science, I think. Yeah, and we're going to be reading that too. Not after this episode, because I'll do it on my own. Um, But then he also founded the city of Vladimir, which will be the next seat of power after Kiev that we will cover. So after we finish the Grand Princes of Kiev, we're going to the Grand Princes of Vladimir. So that's a very important city to to build up. Yeah. And then he also presided over the Lubitsch Accords. So he was the one who ran the whole event. So those accords that, you know, were basically he ran 
Lubitsch Accords. He was the one in charge of Sviatopolk the second surrender at Gordodietz and to Davidi Gordievici's surrender at Uvietici. So, like, he's the one who's kind of in charge after the Lubitsch Accords. But just in, like, not officially, but in name. So, like, he, it was like, yeah, Sviatopolk is in charge, but it's actually Mona Mach who runs things, not Sviatopolk. Yeah, so... He's what I would call a talented statesman. Exactly. Which is part of why he's seen as like the golden age of part of the golden age of mm-hmm. Kiev, because he's really good at what he does. And then I thought this was interesting. He had 11 children, which um, were eight sons and three daughters. And nine of this, nine of his kids survived him. And then um, a, a bit of fun facts, a bit of a spoiler. Four of his sons will be grand princes. Hmm. But you'll find out how that happens. So you don't, and I'm not going to say any more than that. But four of them will be grand princes. So that's all I have for Uspiek, unless I didn't say something that you remembered. Um, no. Okay, so what do you want to give him? Uh, another 10. I, yeah, I can't give him anything else but a 10 on this one. Uh, so he, this is the fourth 20 we have in Uspiek. Who are the others? We have Olga of Kiev. Yeah. Vladimir the Great. Yeah, makes sense. Yaroslav the Wise. Yeah, I don't remember Yaroslav the Wise, but I do remember Olga and Vladimir the Great. What you said about uh, Yaroslav the Wise was... I like tomes. I'm a tome guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so that is a 20 in Uspiech. Compromat. Blackmail. What things did they do behind closed doors or outwardly that made others dislike them? Ooh, there's, a, there's actually a bit of stuff here. Okay. So the first thing is we mentioned in the story, he killed the Cuban chieftain Itlar under guest right. Yeah. Which is a big no-no. Another one is that he probably ordered Yaroslav Shatopolchich to be murdered. Okay. I don't care for that guy, so whatever. And then here is at least, and there's another thing that I read from Pyotr uh, Vasilievich Golubovsky, which is a negative thing about Monomach. Um, and he says that, you know, Monomach was the most cunning and efficient of all the princes in his dynasty. And he, and Golubovsky accuses the prince of being a hypocrite, insidious, and a violator of laws, <laughs> which seems different than what we wrote, said about him. But yeah. He, he acknowledges that the lands of Rus suffered great distress from the debarred princes who fought incessantly for domains, but he places a responsibility for the people's grief on Monomach's shoulders. He, uh, Mo- Golubovsky claims that Monomach and his father, Sievolod, ignored the distress that they wrought on the inhabitants of Rus in pursuing their centralizing policies and in fighting for their personal objectives. Golubovsky considers Monomach's campaigns against the Cubans to have been completely fruitless, and they only serve to irritate the nomads who, in retaliation, pillaged the borderland regions of Rus. Yeah, you know, these are all very fair points. Um... You know, centralizing policies are typically disruptive, and this brings hardship on the common people, to say the least. Yes, and like, even all his fighting, he's very fighty, but Golubovsky says, yeah, he fought a lot. So who's who's Golubovsky? I think he's a historian. What kind of historian? I mean, I don't know what kind of me. He seems very opinionated about it for somebody who has no stake. Uh, well, he died in 1907, so he's a Russian historian. <laughs> well, he's weirdly opinionated about it. That's that's what I will say. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's spirited debate about the legacy of Monomach at this period in history. I don't know. He chaired the Department of Russian History at Kiev University. Okay, okay yeah, so, okay. I understand, like I said, seems oddly passionate about it. These are all very fair points. But, you know, they're fair points, and like, as, which also was why the reason I detracted from his Spetsiana Operatia by one was just because he didn't... Yeah, he fought a lot, but he didn't gain anything from it. Yeah, but here's... So, the way I see Compromat is I see it sort of as a measure of reputation, not 
how they actually conducted themselves. I say it as how they conduct themselves, but we measure how we want. Okay. And he's still widely beloved, so... And he's a saint. Yeah, he's a saint. So, you know, with those... There's one more thing. Okay. He ordered the expulsion of the Jews from Rus. Why didn't you mention that earlier? Because I put that under compromise. Uh, well, okay then. Yeah, so what do, what, do, what do you want to give him? Honestly, I'm still scoring him though, because I said it's about more about reputation to me. He's still widely beloved, so I might give him a, a, a one. A one? Yeah. I'm going to give him a six. Okay. Because I think he, he did some dastardly things, especially the guest right thing and the expulsion of the Jews. For me, that's the main yeah. two. And I know I don't have to defend myself here, but the text here is, what things did they do behind closed doors or outwardly that made others dislike them? If it's about others' dislike, then yes, I would have to score it low. Sorry. I mean, I, I, I made, it made me dislike him a bit. Just, you know, but a six yeah. is... That's a seven for compromat. Okay, boje moi. Oh my god. Basically, how good looking were they? Alright, I'm gonna send you a picture of him. This is just a nicer painting rendition of him. So this is him with the monomat cap on. So you can tell this isn't contemporary, but that's okay. Can you describe him for us? You have an old man in... A gold tunic with white decorations, holding a sword, sitting on a throne with the imperial eagles decorating both back, decorating the back of the throne. He's holding a book that seems appropriate, and he has a crown on his head, the monomat cap, which is fur-lined, and it has uh, a gold dome with a cross at the top with jewels and so on and so forth. I mean, he's an old man here, so I can't call him. Oh, I mean, an old man, handsome. I would say yes, applies here. This is a, quite an idealized portrait. And then this is him at a younger age when he went hunting. Um, he's the one sitting next to the tree with the spear. He looks very fierce in this. He looks very intense. Yes. Which, I mean, he was an intense man. He looks like Rasputin is what he looks like to me, honestly. He's got scary eyes. And then this is him. Um, this is the the testament of Monomak, um, when he's just telling his sons who what's going to happen. On his deathbed. So he's the one on the bed, of course. Again, he's an old man. Um, I don't think he... From this, I'm not impressed. And then this is his sarcophagus. This isn't a picture of him, Roberto. This is just his sarcophagus. Which is empty, I might add. Where do they put his body? I don't know. He's a vampire. That's... That's, That is where you are correct. Because he is now with God. True. True. Okay. I don't know. A four? Four or three? Or 3.5? Okay. Three and a half. Okay. I'm giving him a... I want to... I like what he looks like. I'm going to give him a nice round six. Okay, so that is a 9.5 for Bojem Moy. Ladichestva! Sovereignty. How long were they on the throne? Well, Brendan, how long do you think he ruled for? 20 years. How, how long? 20. Well, Modamak ruled on the Kievan throne from April 20th, 1113. For 20 to May 19th, 11.25 for a total of 12 years or 4.78 points. Okay, so I wasn't close at all. <laughs> no, not this time. But this begs the question, is Vladimir II Monomak guest right killy enough? Is he legislative enough to go party it out in the Kremlin or does he get shipped off to the Gulag? Did you say legislative enough? Yeah. Well, I can't. I can't send him to the Gulag. He gets to party in the Kremlin. Uh, yeah, I was. I literally went into this knowing like he is going to party in the Kremlin no matter what. 
Oh, and we forgot to say his total points. So he has a total score of 60.28. Um, wow. Yeah, which puts him in fifth place overall. Wow. I think Vladimir the Great is first at the moment, right? Yes, by over 20 points. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I think, let's see here. Uh, just seeing the points here. Vladimir the Great, he scored better in, spe- in Special Operations. They scored the same in Uspiek, but Vladimir basically demolished him in Kumbramat. Yeah. And in Bojemoy, as well as Vladichistva, because he ruled for a lot longer than he did. So basically, he was more fighty than Vladimir the Great, but he wasn't as, you know, blackmaily or handsome enough or ruled long enough to get get the full points. But, you know, the points don't matter. Um, this is kind of nice to see where they rank. What's really important is whether they get to party in the Kremlin or go to the Gulag. But yeah, so that is what we have. He's in fifth place, which, you know, fifth place isn't bad. He's top five currently out of 15. But uh, still. No, it's not bad at all. <laughs> like, I mean, Olga's second place. I can just... Yeah, so top five currently. Mm-hmm. Um, fifth place, Monomak. Fifth place, Fjallopok the second. What? <laughs> oh yeah, Kompromat. Never mind. Um, fourth place, Yaroslav the Wise. Second place, Olga of Kiev. And first place, Vladimir the Great. I'm still surprised we gave so many points to Sviatopolk. What the heck? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a compromat. It was a compromat. Yeah, yeah, it's a compromat, probably. I mean, like, somehow, I- I'm guessing Olga sort of lost out on compromat because I'm pretty sure I said everyone had it coming. Yes, but she got an 18, so we both gave her nines. Right, yeah. Well, um, she's still number one in our hearts. Actually, wait, did I? I think you gave her a full 10. No. Yes, I gave her an 8. You gave her a 10. <laughs> mm-hmm. For Compromat, yeah. Okay. Well, there's, uh, regardless, they, they had it coming. Yes. But yeah, so, yeah. Basically, Svetlopolk only, the second only beats him out by less than two points. No, less than three points. So, it's a very close one. You know, if we thought he was more Compromat, we could have, he could have beaten him out. But that's okay. So, that is basically it for our rankings so brendan do you have any recommendations for this time so last saturday i played a show with a band called uzkost that's spelled u-z-k-o-s-t i believe it is the czech word for anxiety um they are a killer uh black metal band from steel city pittsburgh pennsylvania um and i not only you know not only played with them, I got to be right there while they were playing, and uh, they're really talented. This singer has some pipes, let me tell you. And I think anybody who is a enjoyer of black metal or any kind of extreme metal will probably enjoy their music. And I think my favorite song by them is Blood Debt. Yeah, Blood Debt by Uzcust is my favorite song by them so far. My recommendation this week is Norm MacDonald's Based on the True Story, Not a Memoir. Uh, so Norm MacDonald is a former member of SNL, known most famously for his dry humor during the update segment. Mm-hmm. I was recommended this book by one of my good friends, and when I went into it, I wasn't thinking and thought it was an actual memoir and not a comedy book. However, there were a few things that he wrote about that you think would potentially ruin a person's life. So when I double-checked his Wikipedia page, I found out that everything the book was saying was completely false. 
Um, however, it was a great time reading through the book once I figured it out. Because I was like, oh my god, this guy has a horrible life. How does he do so many drugs and live? And, you know, he's just a really funny writer. And, well, at least his, yeah. ghost, write- his ghost writer is probably really good. His ghost writer, whose re- name is, uh, his name is Terrence, but his actual, which is a pen name, but his actual name is Charles Manson. <laughs> uh, who released the book around the same, who released like basically what he thought was the best book in the world. During the Charles Manson murders. <laughs> yeah, I'm also a fan of uh, Norm MacDonald. I love all of his OJ jokes on Weekend Update. Oh, yeah, there's a huge OJ joke in the um, the beginning of the book. Yeah. So, which took fin- me a bit to figure it out. Yeah. So, this is more apocryphal, but Norm MacDonald, during the OJ Simpson trial, very famously thought that, yeah, of course OJ is guilty. Which, yeah, I agree. Of course he's guilty. And he refused to stop joking about it and lord michaels at one point told him to stop joking about it and norm Macdonald instead doubled down and told even more oj jokes and he thinks that's maybe part of the reason he was fired or he uh, thought yeah also he was the voice of the pigeon in uh, mike tyson mysteries oh wow i didn't know that uh well the whole book is a wild ride and i could not stop laughing while reading it and I highly recommend recommend it to anybody who can do some light reading. It's only 250 pages, and he writes in a very conversational style, so you can knock it out in a day or two. Just don't spend two months reading it like I did, because I got busy. Brendan, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me. Probably the best place to look is on is on Blue Sky, because I don't use Twitter anymore. But I'm also on Twitter at Foster underscore writing, and my Blue Sky account is just Brendan Foster. B-R-E-N-D-A-N-F-O-S-T-E-R. I was, I guess I count as an early adopter of Blue Sky, so I was able to capture that handle. Woo! And to get more direct contact with us, feel free to access our website at czarpowerpod.com. Thank you, Zach, for getting us at the domain. There you can find the show notes, pictures, bibliography, and vote on whether you think Motomach deserved the Kremlin or the Gulag. If you say Gulag, you're completely wrong. It also has links to our social media, which is just at ZarPowerPod. Zar spelled T-S-A-R. And if you'd like to support the show and help us expand and grow, feel free to subscribe to our Patreon to get access to bonus episodes for both ZarPower and the History of Sacramento, Georgia. We will be releasing an episode on Slavic gods sometime soon. Brendan and I are both going to present some gods. It's going to be a fun time. And we also have an Amazon book wish list, a PayPal, and a coffee. So feel free to support us on that. Give us books. I like books. And if you'd like to do something that's free, leave a review on your favorite podcast host, be it at Apple or Spotify or Podcast Addict or whatever. And that's a dosvinyatavadishi from me. And from me, Varosh Prozdeit Parazito. Bye-bye.